Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Well, it's good to see you here. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Scott, one of our pastors here. And uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm glad to see you today. This, uh, you know, I was telling somebody this morning, I've gotten tired. I've given up trying to predict Houston weather. This time last week, it was like 60 degrees, and it's 60 degrees again, and in between we had a blizzard. It's just, this is the strangest, the strangest weather. Oh, man, I don't know if it's like La Nina, El Nino, global warming. I don't know what it is, but it's, just roll with it. Just roll. It's, it's fun. Um, except when it's not fun, and, but, but, and then, uh, anyway. But uh, we had a good time. Hopefully your kids got to play in some snow uh, like mine did. It was awesome. Uh, this morning, we are excited. We are delving into part three of our uh, Dear Church series. Uh, In this series, we're unpacking these letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. We're looking at the things that he congratulates them for. They all have these good parts that he he says, rah, rah, way to go, guys, you're doing this great. And we're also looking at the things that he uh, warns them about that they need to change, things that are going on that's not going to be good for them if they don't uh, repent and change direction. In the process, what we crave around here, this is what we crave, is a clearer picture of how Jesus Christ wants to grow Generations Church. That's what we're, we're not just assembling knowledge, you know, we could come here and get a lot of knowledge, and you'll, you know, hopefully get some knowledge today, that's, that's good, um, but what we want, what we crave is, is a clearer picture of how Jesus wants to grow us, what we can do as a community together, because we're doing this thing together, to become more like Jesus, That's what we want to do. We want to grow in whatever areas he desires for us in 2018, whatever that is. And so that's what, that's the purpose of what we're doing here. Now today, and to some degree next week too, um, what we're going to be talking about today isn't always super popular subjects. We're going to be talking about topics like sin, topics like uh, punishment and judgment. Uh, We'll be throwing out words like holiness, righteousness, lifestyle issues, Lack of hypocrisy, authenticity, it's, it's stuff, uh, you know, that most of us would like to keep hidden in our lives and compartmentalized. You know, this is that part of my life. It doesn't affect this part of my life. We kind of want to com- keep it all separated and compartmentalized. But what we need is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to light up our hearts, to shoot that light of truth into our lives so that we can be truly free. Anybody with me? Amen. That's how we get truly free. That's what we want. It's not always the funnest thing to talk about. And, you know, it's, it's not always the tastiest thing to eat, you know, chastisement and conviction and things like that. Um, like a, like my, my, my children are, are awesome. I've got, you know, we've got two boys that are, are growing up and they're wonderful. And now we have this beautiful little four-year-old girl in our, in our home and we just, lo- we love her like she's always been there and it's incredible. She's just beautiful. She's, she's perfect in every way. Um, uh, but the girl does not like her greens. We are, the, she will not eat greens, and it is, it, is a, it is a struggle of love to get this girl to take a bite of a green vegetable, you know, and, and you could say, take this bite of broccoli, and I'll give you a piece of cake, but in the end, that, that's, I don't know if that nets out to her health, you know, it's, it's, it's not, so yeah, we need, pray for us there with the greens. Um, the things that are good for us is not always the thing that we want to take a bite of, but we're, we're going to be doing it. Here's the thing that, that I, I want to encourage you in, though. If at some point 
today, hopefully today, you're made to feel a little uncomfortable. You're kind of in your seat doing this a little bit. Be encouraged. Okay, be encouraged because that is good news. That means your self-awareness is working, right? It means you are not a psychopath. You are actually a healthy human being and sensing the Holy Spirit's conviction about things that we all wrestle with, all, we're all guilty of at some point in our lives, right? So it means you're healthy, you're good, that you're a good human being, so that's good if you're feeling a little uncomfortable. You know, if you always feel that same kind of calm, pleased, self-assured detachment during a sermon, uh, that might not be good during things that are preached. If you're always feeling that, lot, or, or lots of warm fuzzies and relief that, oh, once again, this is not about me. Whew, another sermon that's not really about me. If you're always feeling that, we, there's a word for that. It's called dysfunctional. <laughs> another word, self-deception. Is that, too, that might be two words, right? That, that's not a good thing. We, we can actually, you know, we can actually self-deceive ourselves right out of whatever good thing that God desires to free us from. Amen. We can deceive ourselves right out of it. And so we don't want to do that. Um, it's good for us to feel unsettled. It's good for us to feel uncomfortable by God's words to us. Um, I love the old saying, you've probably heard it, that, that the Holy Spirit comforts the disturbed and he disturbs the comfortable. He comforts the disturbed and disturbs the comfortable. You know, the Holy Spirit's beautiful. He knows exactly what you need. And if you are beaten up, if you are just torn apart, life is just beating you on the head and exploding and it's all going terrible, that's not when the Holy Spirit comes and tells you, you're awful, you got to do better. You know, the Holy Spirit, you know what the Holy Spirit does? He, he holds you. He grabs you. Those are the times when he holds you and he says, it's going to be all right. I'm with you. I love you. We're going to make this through together, right? And those times when you're going... God, everything's good. I don't really need you. God says, oh, no, you didn't. The Holy Spirit says, oh, right? So anyway, that's free. Let's dive in today's letter. Today, we are on one, two, three over here. Church number three, we're talking about Pergamum. The church in the city of Pergamum. Here she is on the map there. You can kind of see her at the top of the loop. Um, as we were talking about a couple weeks ago, uh, these churches uh, kind of form a big loop so that, you know, when the, when the letters went out from the Isle of Patmos, the uh, FedEx driver started with Efe, <laughs> Ephesus, he went up to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and, and that's in fact the order that the churches are written in. Um, so there's a lot of theories about why, why the certain order, um, but that's Probably the most natural reason is that that's the order that they're there, and so the, the little messenger would take them. So there we go. Um, now, what we're going to do today, uh, what we've what we have discovered is we're going to we're going to walk through the city of Pergamum for a few minutes because what we discover is that what's going on in this church and in their community can shed light on the words that Jesus is writing to them. Haven't we found that to be true? Uh, so we're going to see if there's something about the city of Pergamum that helps us unlock some doors here. The, the scripture starts out, he says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. That word angel literally means messenger. Um, it could be a pastor or an overseer that he's addressing here. Uh, but so, so first, here's what we want to say about the city of Pergamum. Just to give us some context. Pergamum was an incredibly religious city. 
This was the religious city. Um, there were temples and altars all throughout the city. I don't know if any of you have been in that area getting to travel through the ruins and things like that. But uh, we've heard from, from people who have traveled in that area that the, even the ruins of the temples, it's almost suffocating how many temples there were in this, in this city. Here, just to give you an idea, here's the Athena, the goddess of wisdom and war. Here's the ruins of her temple today where people would flock to worship the goddess of war and wisdom. Um, second big temple here. Here's the god of Asclepius on the side, uh, the god Asclepius. He had one of the main temples there, and it was actually more of a hospital um, in Pergamum. Asclepius was the god of healing. And so when you went to his temple, you know, you didn't go to St. Luke's. You went to the temple of Asclepius if something was wrong. And so what would happen there is they would say uh, if you were sick, you'd go, to, you'd go to the temple of Asclepius, and you'd tell them what was wrong, and you'd go into your own little rooms, kind of like a Sounds like a spa to me. Uh, And so they would prescribe a regimen of these baths uh, for you to take, and they would prescribe you some first century pharmaceuticals uh, for you to uh, kind of go to sleep and trip out on, and you would have these visions, and supposedly Asclepius would tell you stuff. And then you would wake up, and they would, the staff would give you further instructions of what to do to go home, like make a recipe of something, or perform some acts, or say some chants, or things like that. And then what would happen is if you were healed, you would have a sculpture made of the part of the body where you were healed in, right? So if, you, if your foot was healed, you would either buy a little foot sculpture or you would, have, uh, you would commission someone to make it and you would take it to the temple as a way of saying, thank you for healing me. In one of the ruins of, of Asclepius, the archaeologists, one of his temples they found, they found, uh, discovered 30,000 body parts, 30,000 body parts in the temple. In the, in the one, this was in uh, the city of Corinth. And um, again, I think, you know, in, in, in Corinthians, that's, where, that's the church that Paul said, we are all members of one body, but many parts. It's just interesting to me. Um, but I'm a nerd. But so, uh, now you see him also, he's got a snake there. Asclepius means snake. And so you see this snake emblem uh, often, even in our culture today, anybody seen that? Uh, this on like an EMTs or hospital and things like this. Um, so this is associated with healing. Uh, this comes from Asclepius. So there you go. Uh, they had snakes that slithered, were allowed to slither all through the temple of Asclepius. And they, they went, they were throughout the temple and they say if, uh, if they believed if one of these snakes bit you, you were being blessed by the god Asclepius. <laughs> right. So... It makes you not uh, gripe so much about the waiting time at the uh, ER, you know. <laughs> it's better than snakes. So, um, so we have Athena, um, Asclepius, major headquarters of worship in Pergamum. Here is an artist's rendering of Demeter, the goddess Demeter. Uh, Demeter was the goddess of uh, food, grain, cereal, Cheerios, all those kind of things. Uh, Demeter has essentially been called the goddess of groceries because uh, people, she's the one you would thank for your crops growing, you know, sustaining your family. And uh, her Latin name was Sirius, which is where we get cereal. Um, Demeter had a major temple of worship, temple area in Pergamum where people would go and honor her. Next, here's an interesting guy, Dionysus. Uh, also called Bacchus in the, his Latin name. So Dionysus was the god of wine. Worshiping at his temple was one of the more fun church services you could go to in the day. 
you would go to a giant party, basically celebrating Dionysus, and you would drink the wine there, uh, which was believed, and the quote was, to be filled with the spirit of Dionysus. Are, are any connections firing off in your head with Scripture? Yeah, interesting. So uh, maybe why at some point in the New Testament the writer says, we aren't drunk on that kind of wine because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So Dionysus is a, is a fascinating one. He, um, he had all sorts of plays and uh, stories written about him. He was really associated with all the, the, all, also the theater. Um, there's a theater there in Pergamum uh, that sat 10,000 people. And we have to really understand the magnitude of the size of that for this day. No PA equipment, no microphones, 10,000 people. And um, so at the base of the theater there, they say it's this movable stage. And so you would go to the theater, you know, that, that day or that night, and you would see this massive, uh, you, see, you see this uh, play. And behind the theater was the massive temple to Dionysus. And so at the end of the play, the stage would shift and basically reveal the entrance to Dionysus' temple. So you go to the play, and then you go worship in the temple. Um, and, and so it was kind of a, a worship of his power, the power, of, the power to party. Um, so that's what was going on there. Stories say, too, they would, they would uh, have these parades through the street in honor of Dionysus. These marches through the street. It sounded to me a lot like Mardi Gras. Just everybody's just yelling and marching down the street. And some people would be carrying a stick. And carrying the stick was a symbol to everyone around um, that whoever is up for any carnal activity, I'm up for it too. I'll put it that way. It's nicer. Uh, That's basically what the stick said. And that stick was called a tryst. Interesting. You learn so much at church, right? Church is fun. Okay. Now, um, also in Pergamum, Pergamum was one of the major world centers for the worship of Zeus. Zeus, if you remember high school archaeology in English, it was the, he's the king of the gods. His temple in Pergamum was massive. It was the biggest one. It was absolutely enormous. They've been able to determine from the ruins and everything that the entire shape of the altar, just the front altar, made a big U, and so it resembled a gigantic throne. And so, you know, as Zeus is king of the gods, uh, being so massive, he had this massive throne from which to rule everything. So all of this is in one city. This is the city of Pergamum. And, uh, and so if you walk down the street, uh, like I said, travelers say you just get this enormous, imposing sense of, of all these temples. And you can imagine being alive in that day, just walking around, you just be inundated by the presence uh, of all temple after temple to all this whole pantheon of gods and worship and sacrifice to the gods. Here's the thing. It wasn't just separated. It wasn't a separate part of their life, like something they did on Sunday morning. That wasn't the way their lives were like. Uh, worship of the gods was a central part of your life. It was the center of your day. You ate at the temples. Uh, and, you know, if you're, you're hanging out with friends, uh, you, you didn't go to a restaurant. If you wanted some enchiladas, you didn't go to the restaurant. You went to the temples. And that, that you would bring a sacrifice. You would bring meat and things like that. And they would sacrifice it to the god, and then you ate it. Uh, and so that's 
why we see so much in the New Testament. There's a lot of argument among that early church about eating meat sacrificed to idols because it's not just the meat. And Paul even goes into this in some other of his letters. Uh, it's not just the eating the meat. There's no magic in that, but it's all the things that are wrapped up in it, all the things you got to do, you know, the whole ritual that you have to go through to eat that, that meat. Um, and so that was, that was a big deal back then. Um, it just, so, so just eating with friends it is, is inextricably tied up with worship of the gods. Uh, another way I found interesting, if you belong to what they, they called them guilds, it's kind of like a labor union or something like that. If you belong to a particular guild back then, if you had a, basically if you had a job, uh, maybe you were a stonemason, uh, you know, so you would belong to the stonemason guild, or you were a leather worker, or a teacher, you would belong to that guild. Well, each of those guilds had their own patron gods, and you were expected to worship the god of that guild, you know, uh, give him extra worship. And so that was all wrapped up, if, you know, if you wanted a job and to be part of these, these unions. And then it wasn't just worship of the gods, because what started to happen is one Roman emperor after the other, they increasingly began to talk about themselves as gods on earth. And so you have uh, Augustus, the emperor in 9 BC over here on the left, he built himself an enormous temple. We talked earlier about how these cities would compete for the favor of Rome. Each of the cities would be like, we're the, you know, we love you the best. We're the best. You know, we're most pro-Rome. And uh, so they would compete. Well, they sort of won the contract. Pergamum won the Augustus contract. And so this huge temple was built there. Uh, later, Trajan, the emperor Trajan, built a temple, just these absolutely massive gleaming buildings that he built to himself. And so the Roman emperors began speaking of themselves as sons of the gods, sons of the gods. And the way they would present themselves is we have been sent by the gods to bring about a universal era of peace and prosperity, peace and prosperity, Roman peace and prosperity, you know, meant service or we'll kill you. But that was their peace and prosperity. It was order. And they, you know, that was and one of the rallying cries of the day. We've talked about this earlier was Caesar is Lord. They would, that's even how they would greet each other on the street. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Hail Caesar. And so, and, and, you know, because they were always competing for the favor of Caesar, the favor of Rome. They wanted to be Rome's favor. Uh, you know, the greatest thing that would be like if the Caesar decided to come visit your city, that would be a huge deal, right? Because you would take off work, the kids would be out of school, you would line the streets as Caesar comes down the street, and you would bow down and worship him as he came through, hailing him as Caesar. So uh, you can kind of get a glimpse. This is life in Pergamum. And now imagine you've become a Christian. You've become a Christian. This is life in Pergamum. So let's dive into the letter and see what jumps out. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He's talking about Jesus. And so you notice, now, Jesus is introducing himself a new way. Each letter is very interesting. He gives, he introduces himself in a slightly different way. They all begin the same way with some sort of vision of Jesus. Each letter, by the way, begins that way with a vision of, first a vision of Christ. And then they end with a call for us to listen to the Holy Spirit. Vision of Christ, we listen to the Holy Spirit. We keep our eyes, this is good advice for all of us. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus while we keep our ears open to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Um, it's just a good reminder to me. This is a great way to live. Keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus, my ears listening to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think I'm tempted to get that backwards. 
uh, that we can get our eyes fixed on the, on the Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is the star of the show. And uh, that's not what we see in Scripture. It's actually all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Holy Spirit's role is there to bring us back to a focus on Jesus, helping us to become more like Jesus. That's how each of these letters begin. So the vision of Christ here, uh, it, he's referring to something in chapter 1 where he talks about the sword, this double-edged sword, very evocative image, coming out of his mouth. Um, so the, this, the sword, and we're told that that sword is God's word, which if you remember back from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and that word had a name. His name is Jesus, right? And so Jesus, the Word of God, here we have this picture, Jesus, the Word of God, speaking God's truth that is like a sword because it pierces, it divides, it reveals the truth, reveals our hearts. And in, in, uh, so let's continue in verse 13. He says, so he starts off with some good points. Here's your good points. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a bad neighborhood, Right? <laughs> If you're, if you're going to make a move, if you're moving and you're on Yelp looking at different neighborhoods, well, they got good schools, got some good restaurants. Satan has his throne there. And those housing prices better be low, right? Because that is a real minus. Um, of course, Jesus, what most believe is that he's making a subtle reference to the temple of Zeus, this throne of Zeus that was in the center of the city. It was famous for the throne of Zeus, which is right there in Pergamum. Um, and it's interesting, he, he, call, he says, you live where Satan has his throne, because to God it's the same thing. To God it's the same thing. And, and Satan, too, remember, he doesn't care who you're worshiping as long as it's not God. Satan doesn't come out and say, you must worship me, you know. He, he, he's fine with you worshiping Zeus. He's fine with you worshiping whatever. Um, he wins the game by getting you to worship anybody but God. So a throne to Zeus might as well be the throne to Satan. He says, yet you remain true to my name. That's good. They remain true. They haven't given up on Jesus. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Antipas was one of the very first martyrs. We're not told much more about him in the Bible, but from some other sources of history, we, we learn about him a little bit. Uh, one of the first martyrs that was killed under that terrible wave of martyrdom that began with Nero and continued with Emperor Domitian, uh, those guys just went absolutely ballistic on the early church. Uh, one source says, according to tradition, Antipas was slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle. So these guys were not messing around when it came to the church. Um, and so he praises them. And then in verse 14, he says, I have a few things, nevertheless. Okay, here it comes. I have a few things against you. So if you're in this church, you're going, what is it? Is it going to be okay? What is it going to be? There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. So here, uh, Jesus uses the example of Balaam, who was a, this notorious Old Testament prophet for hire. He was hired, and the story is found in Numbers 22 and 25. We don't have time uh, to, do, to look at it in a lot of detail, uh, but it's an interesting story. Go and read those uh, this, this week. Um, just to refresh your memory on Balaam and Balak here, Balak was the king of Moab. 
Here's Israel, here's Moab. He's the king of Moab. He hates Israel. He hates everything about Israel. He wants to destroy Israel, the king of Moab. So he hires a prophet for money to go curse Israel. So this seemed like a good idea to him. (laughs) So he hires this prophet, Balaam, to go curse Israel. The problem was every time Balaam would go down and try to curse Israel, the spirit would move and out would come a blessing. Crazy story. Out would come a blessing. He's like, all right, here we go. And, and you're going to be blessed. No, right? That, 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 this is basically what ba- was happening to Balaam. Um, the, the blessings would come. And so uh, finally, he, he came up with another idea. He came up with another idea. He, he had been paid for this by the king uh, of Moab. And so he wanted the king to get his money's worth. And so he went back to King Balak and he said, uh, here's what you need to do. You need to teach your women of Moab how to entice the men of Israel, and they will intermarry with you, and uh, it'll, they'll start worshiping the pagan gods. That sounds like a really far-fetched idea. The thing was, unfortunately, it worked. It actually worked. That's what sad, and Israel suffered for centuries because of this. Um, so there's this, so, so Jesus is, is referencing this story that the Jews would have remembered uh, about some sort of sexual enticement that was going on. There's, it has infected the church from the inside out. Then he says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Can you remember them from the first letter to the Ephesus? The Nic- now, he was praised the church of Ephesus because they didn't hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. These guys have been uh, succumbing to these teachings. Again, we're still not completely sure who these are. There's several good theories. Uh, but what's obvious about these two groups is that these were people within the church. This is people who have infiltrated the church, and they're tempting others to water down their faith, not by deserting Jesus entirely, because he says, you, you haven't left me, but they, they're not deserting him entirely, but what they're doing is blending their Christian faith with another faith, right? The fancy word is syncretism, but it's blending their Christian faith with another faith, and that's what's happening here. And some of them were saying like, okay, guys, you know, I know like, you know, we worship the one true God and all. But you can go down to Athena's temple and eat with your friends, right? I mean, they have great steak at Athena's. It's really good. Uh, so, you know, go down, so do the bowing, do the, you know, shake the smoke, whatever you got to do, say the thing. You know, just to, eat, to be with your friends. It's okay to, to do that. You go through the rituals. It's not a big deal. You can still go to the Dionysus party, right? It's okay because, you know, Dionysus isn't real, we know Dionysus isn't real, so it's not that big a deal. You can march in the parade, have a good time. We're saved by grace, right? And if the emperor comes to town, you know, everybody's going to be there. Everybody's going to be bowing down. It's okay. Bow down, worship him as the Son of God. We know he's not the Son of God. You know, we can bow down to him. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. It's a good day. You know, the kids are going to be out of school. Make a memory. Everybody will be together. It's a family thing. You can do that. Um, you just don't mean it in your heart. That's what's important. Just don't mean it in your heart. You can kind of go through the motions of empire worship. You can go through the work, motions of pagan worship. You know, just so people don't think you're weird or antisocial. This is the thinking. This is what has, this is the argument going on inside the church that they're wrestling with right here. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, yeah, it's a shame how irrelevant this is to us today, right? Um, this is exactly what Christians today still have to wrestle with. Because it's not enough 
for us to, to say, well, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I'm just, I'm going to sort of date these other idols, right? I love you. I'm just going out tonight. I'm going to date these other idols, okay? Because they're, they're fun. But Jesus, don't worry. You still have my heart. You still have my heart. Has anybody ever tried this on their spouse? Your, your ex-spouse, right? No, your ex-spouse. Because um, Jesus says, yeah, I'm not down with that. He's not. He's not down with that. And he's actually, there's actually a word in Scripture that God gives us for this, this sort of thinking. And the word is adultery. God considers it adultery against Jesus. And yeah, that is just as gross as it sounds. This week in our home life groups, we'll, we'll dive into that a little deeper. We'll, we're going to ask, what is the, the meat sacrifice to idols in our culture, right? And, and how do we do that? And how do, we, how do we walk that out? How do we keep our desire to be faithful to Jesus from just turning another excuse for legalism, right? Because that's the other extreme. And so that's something we, we wrestle with. That's why we do this thing together. Community is important. Um, so the Christians were really unusual in that first century in Pergamum. One of the, the things that made them most unusual was the fact that they believed in one God and only one God, and they would only worship God. They, they, you know, they reminded each other, we don't sleep around on God, right? He is, he is God. He is our love, and we are the bride of Christ. And, uh, and so I think it's important for us to keep coming back. This was one of the reasons this Christian exclusivity in, in, in their worship was really weird in their city. That was weird to the rest of the people. It was weird to the rest of the city. Everybody worshiped multiple gods. Even the emperor's deal. You know, when he came and conquered your city, his deal wasn't that you, only have to wor- you can only worship me now. He, was just, he would say, worship your other gods. Just worship me too. I mean, that was the Roman ideal. It was actually very inclusive, right? And, and so Christians absolutely stuck out like a sore thumb in this kind of a society. And it's why they were persecuted. It wasn't just because they believed in Jesus. It's because they would not bow to anyone else, including the state. They would not bow to the Caesar. They would not bow to the statues of Caesar. They wouldn't bow. They wouldn't do the sacrifice rituals of the gods. Like, you kind of had to just to function in the nor- like in normal society. They wouldn't do it. So this temptation was always there to kind of spiritually sleep around. Uh, it, that was ever-present in the early church. Again, completely irrelevant for us today, so we could just let that one go, right? <laughs> uh, if you remember from week one, Ephesus over here, that the church of Pergamum is kind of the opposite of Ephesus. Remember Ephesus? They were, they were all about being correct. They were the heresy hunters. They had everything correct, hunting out the heretics, but they weren't what? Loving right? They had forsaken love. So Ephesus wasn't loving. So here uh, you have Pergamum. It sounds like Pergamum's kind of super free with their affections, right? We love everybody. And, but but uh, they're not exercising any discernment, okay? And, and so this is good for us. This is good for us because God, I believe God is looking for a church who is really into love. I think it starts there but who will not only be loving, but he's looking for a church who will be wise, a church who will be faithful to stand as God's city on the hill. We're to be God's city on the hill to the world, to shine, to stand up on that wall and shine for the world, 
to see. Loving, but faithful to Jesus. Here in Pergamon, you've got, a, you've got a church here that can't stop sitting on the fence. They won't get off the fence. So here's what Jesus says to them about this in verse 16. He says, repent, therefore. Repent, the word means change, change your mind. Head in a new direction. Otherwise, I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's that sword again, the words of God, the truth of God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's, let, the, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. Listen to the Spirit. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, there's some mysterious things happening right there. A couple thoughts about this promise to those who persevere and why this moves me. Uh, first of all, these, these three symbols here, the, the hidden manna, a white stone, a secret name. There are so many interpretations and possible, opi- so many opinions about this, what exactly these, these symbols are referring to. And, and there's some really good explanations out there, but they're all over the place. Nobody's really sure. And we're going to talk in Home Life uh, this week also about some of the possible interpretations of these symbols. But here's where I feel like this morning, for you and me this morning, where I feel like the Holy Spirit's leading us to take from this. When you persevere in your circles, in your society, at work, at school, wherever you are, when you persevere and you continue to trust this resurrected Jesus, he is going to sustain you. And, and he will grant you a place in his kingdom, in his community. Whatever it is that you give up in the world, in their organizations or clubs or whatever it is, he will grant you a place in his community. He even redeems your name and your past so that you are not the person the world says you are. You are not the sum product of your history anymore. That's a lie that the world tells you. You're the sum of your past. No, no, Jesus says no. You are someone who has been refined by fire and who have come through it all shiny-like. And Jesus says... I will make sure that the trial you are in right now will result in you being more like me on the other side, more resilient, more loving, more gracious, more wise to the truth. And so when those around you are like, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Come on. You can worship the gods. You can kneel to the empire. It doesn't hurt anything. Remember, it does matter. Because Jesus is life. Jesus is where our life is. Jesus. Life and joy is not granted by the gods. It's not granted by the government. It's found in Jesus. Jesus. So he tells us, stay true. Stay true. Stay true. And and Jesus says, I'm going to provide you with all the strength you need. Does anybody need to hear that word this morning? Amen. I do. Now, all this begs the question, why? Why is God promising to sustain us? Is there some greater purpose that we are called to that he is preserving us 
for? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. Thank you. Um, imagine that you are a Christian in Pergamum. You're a Christian, and you have heard this message of the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, and something within you says, that is truth. Yes, that is it. And you hear about grace, and you hear that you don't have to go to the temples anymore. You don't have to go and keep all the gods happy so they don't get upset with you. You don't have to do that anymore. And you hear these teachings about Jesus, this Jesus who says, and I am not just one more ritual to add to your burden of rituals. No, 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 no. Because I am the one who died for you. I shed my blood for you so that you can have a relationship with Almighty God. And this God, by the way, doesn't share your affections with idols. This God actually knows how many hairs on your head you have. This God causes the rain to fall on the just and unjust alike. This God sent Jesus because he is love. And and God made peace through Jesus. And you can trust him. This is what has happened to you, Christian of Pergamum. You've discovered this. And the people who first heard this, they called this good news. Can you understand why? Good news. Hallelujah. Now, imagine trying to share this news with your neighbor. Your neighbor. So the central story about Jesus was that he was offering another way than the Caesar way. It was a way of power, but it was a different kind of power. There's Caesar power, his whole brand of peace and prosperity Jesus' power, is, is, it's not coercive military violence. It, it's, it's not the, the peace that says, I bring peace, agree with me or I'll kill you. It, it was an upside-down kind of power that worked not through crushing your enemies, but by loving your enemies. Very unusual. Not through taking the sword of war to those outside, but by standing up and praying for your enemies, loving them. And this Jesus insists that he, not Caesar, is Lord. He's actually the Son of God. And his peace is the real kind of peace. And this other peace is actually kind of a mockery of God's kind of peace. That's, that's the story. So can you imagine now trying to explain to your neighbor in Pergamum, maybe your coworker, trying to explain to them, actually, um, I followed Jesus. And they're like, oh, well, tell me about him. I haven't heard about that God. And you're like, well, he came, he loved, he taught, and he healed. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, uh, that the kingdom of God is here. And then he was crucified. And your friend's like, wait, crucified? By who? Uh, The Romans? (laughs) So he's an enemy of the empire, (laughs) is what you're telling me. An enemy of the empire. Well, then why is he a big deal? You're like, well, he's a big deal because he rose from the dead. And, and actually, it basically means that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. So imagine explaining this in a city where idols and empire worship are, are, are not considered sins. They are what made you good citizens. That's what made you a good person. Your idols and empire worship, 
in the midst of this worship of an emperor, you're worshiping a savior who was crucified by said emperor. (laughs) Can you imagine this might put you at odds with some people in your society? Right. We're supposed to worship the emperor. Your guy was crucified by the guy we're supposed to worship. And then your neighbor says, well, where's this Jesus now? Where is he? Where's his altar? Because the Caesar temple is right here in front of my eyes. And dude, it is huge. It is awesome. Where is your dude's temple? You're like, uh, actually, you're looking at it. We are the temple of, of God. Can you imagine in Pergamum, this dominant culture all around you, and you're trying to explain your experience of the healing love of, of the resurrected Christ? I assume that there would be moments, there's going to be moments where all you have You don't remember any of the the big theological arguments and the Greek words and the hermeneutics. All you have in your head is your own personal story. And and all you had is the story of your community, this ragtag group of believers who believe with every fiber of their being that Jesus is Lord. And maybe that's all you have. Try really hard. Let's try to imagine what it would be like to witness to somebody in a society with temples on every corner, with fanatical patriotism everywhere, and a slavish addiction to pleasure. Can you try to imagine what that would be like? Because this is life in Pergamon, but this is life in Texas, right? How many of you have ever tried to explain your love of Jesus to people and you're saying, I believe Jesus is Lord, and, and I believe he works in mysterious and compelling and beautiful ways, and he's saving me, and man, he's restoring me. He's rescuing me from myself, from my addictions, from my hang-ups. And sometimes I can put language on it, and sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's like I'm trying to get you to hear a song that you haven't heard before, but I have heard it, and it is so beautiful. Do you ever feel tired and weary of trying to explain your Jesus experience to a, to a dominant culture that doesn't understand it. They have, a, they have a word, they have a phrase for it. It's called evangelism fatigue. <laughs> Getting tired and weary of trying to explain, trying to put words on your Jesus experience. By the way, good news, in March, we'll be starting a series about just this kind of thing, putting language on it so that you can be an evangelist to those uh, that God has placed you in the middle of. That's going to be in March. Yeah. So I assume this is why Jesus comes to them and he says, stay true, stay true. Don't grow weary, stay true. To those who are victorious, to those who persevere, To to those, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will preserve you. I will sustain you. Do you trust this Jesus? Do you? Do you trust this Jesus? Because that, by the way, is how this thing works. It's by trust. This all works by trust. It's not just a big matter of your willpower all week long. It's by trust. Trusting in Jesus with all your might, 
all the time understanding that your might can't save you. Your might can't make you good enough. Only trusting in him is going to carry you over that finish line to victory. He calls, he calls us lampstands. He calls us lights to the world. We're like candles. We're like light bulbs. But the light bulb doesn't power itself. We're not the electricity. He powers us to shine. Amen. We have to trust in him. It's about saying, yes, I trust that this Jesus is good. I trust that he is true. I trust that he's my savior. I trust that he's my redeemer, that he is who he says he is, and that he is good. We have to trust him. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.